0: Tell Sophie I'm about to start. Oh, that's not Sophie. It's Ethan. Okay. <laughs> um, when was the last time the word joy um, crossed your lips? Well, not as a proper name, obviously. Not as a proper name. When was the last time you used the word joy in a sentence? When was the last time you experienced joy? And what was the occasion? Some years ago, when I was still in business and I was preaching on the side, I was doing an in-depth study of the use of the word joy in the Bible. And I thought, i got a great idea. I was going to preach that Sunday. And it was, uh, I was doing my job. And I thought, hey, I'm going to ask everybody I encounter today, when was the last time they used the word joy? When was the last time they, they talked about joy? So I, I did a survey. I asked coworkers and vendors and customers, and I asked my boss, I asked the guy at the drive through at Taco Bell, and almost unanimously, I got a blank stare, almost unanimously. Now, the men were terrible. It was like they thought it was unmanly to even talk about joy, much less feel joy. They were just awful. Some of them finally would stutter and stammer and say something about their, their family, like that was the right answer or something, but... Um, the women did much better. I bet you could guess what the number one and number two answer was for women. Birth and marriage. Birth and marriage, yes. <laughs> the wedding day and the birthday. So, how would you define the word joy? The dictionary says it like this a condition or feeling of great pleasure, happiness, or delight. One of the synonyms listed for the word joy, I was a little surprised, I didn't expect it, is the word fruition. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Here's a definition of the word fruition. The agreeable emotion accompanying the expectation, acquisition, or possession of something desirable. Essentially, fruition means completion. So in the deepest sense, joy involves completion. I thought that was a perfect definition with respect to how the Bible speaks about this wonderful Emotion of joy. True joy is bigger than simple happiness. I think we would have to confess it's larger than just momentary pleasure. Human happiness is chiefly connected with what happens to us during the day. Most uh, often, it is purely uh, circumstantial. It's based on what's going on in our life. Biblical joy is much different than that. Obviously, it's deeper and it's bigger. It transcends circumstance. It transcends whatever's going on in our life. Good, bad, indifferent, whether it's hard, biblical joy transcends uh, the circumstances of our life. So we have this perfectly good English word that almost is never used. The word joy. Think about it. When was the last time when you weren't doing your Bible study or answering a Bible study question that you used the word joy? Joy in a sentence. The truth is, most, human, most of humanity does not know anything about real joy. But God's different. God is different. Joy is a pervasive theme in the Bible. The word joy, rejoice, and delight are used over 500 times in the Scriptures. How could joy not be a pervasive theme in the Bible? Right? Jehovah. Jehovah is the main character in the Bible. How could joy not be a pervasive theme? First 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul uh, calls God of the Bible the blessed God. What does that mean? What does it mean? The word blessed. The happy God. He is the happy God. Uh, beloved, I, I've mentioned this to you several times. I trust that you know this about God. He is infinitely happy. Do you know this about Him? I know there are some uh, pseudo-Christian expressions that basically paint God as as, uh, ever wrathful, always angry, always mad. We know that wrath is certainly an aspect of God's character. But God is infinitely happy. His happiness is not like human happiness. It's not circumstantial. It's based solely upon who He is. His own excellence. His own perfections. John Piper says it like this. I love it. Our Father's heart is full of deep and unshakable happiness. And we can be sure that when we seek our happiness in Him, we will not find Him to be out of sorts. We will not find a frustrated, gloomy, irritable Father who wants to be left alone. But instead, a Father whose heart is so full of joy, it will spill over onto all who are thirsty. Any amens on that? God is a God of infinite and eternal, irrepressible, overflowing happiness and joy. The Bible reflects this from beginning to end. You know what, you know what the Bible says about creation. Job 38.7 When God said, uh, Let there be the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God what shouted for joy. You know too, I assume, that redemption was driven by joy. Hebrews 12.2 For the joy set before Christ he endured the cross. Eternity will be full of joy." Psalm 16:11: "In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever." So if the Creator God is full of joy, why aren't men? You know why, don't you? <laughs> Genesis chapter three. We rebelled. We rebel against this awesome God. And to paraphrase Jeremiah, the prophet, he says, Mankind has forsaken the fountain of living water or joy to hew for himself broken cisterns, dry wells that can hold no water or hold no joy. It's Romans chapter 1. Mankind has exchanged the truth for a lie. That's why mankind knows basically nothing about Joy. We've made ourselves, we've made our lives something, we've made our lives something uh, about something other than God. That's what I'm trying to say. We're so busy making our lives about something other than God. Even the believer, many times, has lost the joy of our salvation. But in God's mercy, His grace, and His his compassion, He has staged an intervention. He has stepped into flesh. He has stepped into time. And He's bringing His joy to His people. He's bringing His joy to His people. He's come to get us off dry wells, the dry wells of sin and self. He's come to give us Himself. God is the Gospel, as John Piper says, so perfectly. In John 15.11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that My joy may be in you. I love that verse. I love that verse. How can you not love that verse? The joy of God. He's going to put it in us. He's doing that as He brings us into conformity with His Son. He says that your joy may be made full. Beloved, it's Colossians 1.16. I know I bring that verse up all the time. But the reason I do is it's so foundational. We were created by Him and for Him. And when we come into relationship with Him, we actually taste and experience the purpose for which we were created. The byproduct of that is God-sized joy. It's, It's fruition. It's completion. At least we're on that road toward completion. Again, as God is at work in us to bring us into conformity with Jesus Christ. Philippians. You say, well Jim, what's that got to do with Philippians? Everything. Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. Paul just spills his heart out to this church. And he mentions the word joy and rejoicing about 15 or 16 times. It depends on which translation you look at. Paul just keeps talking about it. It's spilling out of his life and it's spilling out onto the page as he talks about the relationship he has with Christ the Lord and the work that He is doing. It's the John 15.11 thing for Paul. He's living the joy of God. We touched on it last week. Paul is a true disciple. He has completely given himself away to Christ. Let me just stop and ask you, have you done that? If you call yourself a Christian tonight, that should be one of the first transactions. I completely give myself away, utterly and completely, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw. We talked about this last week. This is something Paul had done. Philippians 3.8. We read it last week. I'm going to read it to you again. Paul says, "...I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish." That's dung in the King James. The literal Greek is refuse. "...in order that I may gain Christ." Paul found fruition and completion and joy in Christ. Beloved, if your joy quotient is low, it's your fault. It's not your God's fault. You've let your life become about something other than Him. If you don't have joy in your heart, it's not His fault. It's your own fault. You somehow let things get into your life that mean more to you than Jesus Christ. Beloved, it ought not be that way for the true Christian. So Joe, uh, Paul's joy spills out all over the page and he writes this letter. Many of you know he's in his first imprisonment in Rome as he writes this letter. at 61 A.D. He's principally writing to thank the church for their continued support of him. Uh, this is Paul's most personal letter in Scripture. He's obviously very close to these people, and he loves these people. This is a very, very personal letter. Paul had planted the church about ten years prior to the writing of this letter. I thought it would be good to just take a few minutes and remember how the church of Philippi was planted. Anybody remember Acts chapter 16? Uh, it tells us why Paul ended up in Europe. The Holy Spirit had blocked him from further teaching in Asia and he saw a vision. He got a vision from God. and It was a man calling Paul to come over to Europe, come on over to Macedonia and share the Gospel. So this is what Paul does. He sets sail for Europe and he quickly comes to Philippi. Uh, <clears throat> he As you know, Paul's uh, habit was to go to the synagogue. There is no synagogue in Philippi. You had to have ten Jewish men uh, uh, to have a synagogue. They have no synagogue. So where do the Jews go on the Sabbath? Without a synagogue, they gather. If there's a river, they gather at the river. So Paul goes to the river, and he finds some women congregated there. And he begins to speak to them. You may remember one of them is named Lydia. Lydia. And then there are those beautiful words in, six, in Acts 16:14, these breathtaking words that every born-again believer knows and cherishes and loves. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that verse, as Lydia as Lydia listened intently, the Master gave her a trusting heart and she believed. I love that verse. The Master gave her a trusting heart and she believed. If you're a Christian tonight, you get that. You understand that. It's that heart transplant thing that God does in the heart of one of His children. Um, Ezekiel 36:26 God says I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's that sovereign work of grace God does in the hearts of his people. It's that sovereign work of grace that we will that will inform and energize our worship and praise for a billion eternities. We'll never grow weary praising God for sovereign grace. We'll never grow weary of praising Him. Amen. We were dead in our sins, but what? Someone tell me. Oh, now we're alive. We were enemies of God, but someone tell me, now we're what? Oh, we're co-heirs with the Son. We were children of wrath, but now we are children of God. How did this happen? God opened our hearts. I love, I love Acts chapter 16. I love it. How did it come about that rebellious, self absorbed, obstinate, willful sinners, willful sinners like Jim Albright, ever became a Christian? The Father of Love has sent for me. The Father of Love has sent for me. That's how. That's how. Do you remember the other chartered member of the Church of Philippi? Anyone? He was a jailer. You remember the story? Paul and Silas uh, had cast a demon out of, out of a girl. And, and uh, there was a riot. And they were unjustly stripped and beaten with rods. And, and in prison, not only in prison, they were put in stocks. You may remember what Paul and Silas were doing long about midnight. Anyone remember? Do you remember? Joy. Joy. <laughs> Beloved, this is how you and I are supposed to live. Even if we're in prison, in stocks, unjustly, joy. They were praising and singing hymns to the Lord. Oh, you remember what God did in the midst of the joy of His people? Oh, He sent an earthquake and He set all the prisoners free. Oh, what else did God do in the midst of the joy of His people? He converted the jailer and the whole household of The jailer. Beloved, how cheaply... I've asked you this question before. How cheaply do you give your joy away during the day? How cheaply do you give it away? Beloved, it should be the signature of our lives. I'm not saying we're perfect in this regard. I'm not saying that. But our joy transcends every circumstance. Everyone. Every single circumstance. You remember what happened to Job when he lost everything? What did He do? He worshipped. As He wept, He worshipped. Beloved, this is real Christianity we've been talking about for the last three, four weeks. So, the Philippian church is born in great joy via the sovereign power of God. It's how every Christian becomes a believer. It's how every church is born. Every true church. By the power of God. I know that was a long introduction, but here we go into the verses. Verse 1 of chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. The opening greeting mentions both Paul and Timothy. Some say, well, this must mean they co authored the book. Obviously, uh, that's not the case. Most likely, Paul is dictating, and Timothy is recording his words. Paul calls himself and Timothy bond servants of Christ. What does that mean? I know that many of you know what that means. Some of you guys that study your Bible. Paul, Peter, Jude, and John, they all use this phrase to describe themselves. It means I am a voluntary slave. It means I, I voluntarily bond myself to my Master. I don't do it out of constraint. I do it out of love. I have, as I said earlier, The disciple says, I give myself away to this beautiful, awesome God. I voluntarily bond myself to Him. I'm a slave of Jesus by choice. It's what we've been talking about. It's real Christianity. We've been talking about it the last three or four weeks. Real Christians don't have to become disciples to be saved. Real Christians have to become disciples because they are saved. We can't help it. (laughs) We have to go with Him. He's compellingly beautiful. He's compellingly desirable. He has the words of life, as Peter says. Try to stop me from walking with Jesus. This is the confession of the bondslave of Christ. Do you notice Paul is writing to all the saints, he says, verse 1. Does this mean that if if I don't have a statue at the Vatican, then I'm not being addressed here in this letter? Is that what that means? Of course not. Saints are not super-duper Christians. That is a false, non-biblical notion. The Bible uses the term saint to speak about all true believers. All born-again believers who have been sanctified or set apart by the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you're a real Christian, you're a real saint. That's what the Bible says about you. I love how the Holy Spirit says it, says it here. We're not saints because we're real religious. And we know religious stuff. Why are we saints? What does the word say right there? We're saints because we're what? In Christ. That's why we're saints. Because we are in Christ. This week, Karen and I were talking and she was sharing with me about a, a conversation she had with a Catholic woman who, uh, about purgatory. And this Catholic woman was all in a knot about how she could ever be righteous enough to stand Before God. Of course, as Bible believers here at the International Church of Milan, we understand that purgatory is a myth. It has no biblical basis. In fact, in my mind, uh, purgatory is worse than a myth. It's blasphemous. It's basically saying what Jesus did on the cross is not sufficient. That's a contradiction to the explicit meaning of the word of God, 1st John 1:7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I don't need purgatory. I don't need the sacraments. All I need is Jesus. That's all I need. And his blood has cleansed me from all my sin, past, present, future. Thank you, Lord. It doesn't mean we don't come and confess our sin. Of course we do. We're commanded to. But by the blood of Jesus, we, we have received forgiveness. Amen. Beloved, don't let don't let false Christianity fool you. Jesus is enough. He is enough. Secondly, we understand, in light of this same conversation, that we can never be righteous enough in our in in and of ourselves. It doesn't matter how many robes we wear or how many things we do, how many candles we light. These things don't matter. We are righteous only because we are in Christ or we're not righteous at all. We put no store in religion or the traditions of men. The Holy Spirit is very clear. We are saints precisely and only because we are in Christ. Then Paul mentions these. Did you notice here? He mentions overseers and deacons. This tells us that the Philippian church has established biblical leadership. You know, many churches these days, they just make up stuff and they do what they want. But this is biblical leadership. Overseers are just another word for a pastor, an elder, or a bishop. Pastor, elder, bishop, same office. Same meaning in Scripture. Pastor, elder, bishop are synonymous terms. They serve the same function in a local church. It's the biblical model of leadership in the church. It's the model that ICM uses. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite greetings. He uses it seven times in the New Testament. It's like a mini-sermon. It's like a mini-gospel presentation. Grace. He mentions grace. It is the most urgent need of every human being on the planet. It is exactly what God has come to offer Again, is this earned because we do religious stuff and we say religious stuff and and we think about religious stuff? No, it's the free gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for all who will repent and believe. For all who will repent and believe. And the result is what Paul says second. The result is is a peace with God. The sinner has peace with God. Propitiation has taken effect. The wrath of God has been removed from us. Jesus took it. And we have rebellious sinners, once rebellious sinners, now have peace with God in Jesus Christ. It's the whole Romans 8, 29, 30 thing that we'll talk about in just a minute. Verses 3 through 5, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my heart, pardon me, in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. There you see the first use of the word joy. Again, we're going to see it about 15 or 16 times in this short little letter. Paul has a pastor's heart. He's thankful for the people. He's just thankful. He has a pastor's heart. And his, jo- his heart is full of joys. he remembers them. And as he prays for them. It's how true called of God pastors feel about their congregations there's just a deep love and thankfulness and joy did you notice in verse 5 the the philippian congregation oh they don't just sit in the pew on sunday what does he say verse 5 what does he say your participation in the gospel from the first day until now they not only participate in the gospel they're faithful they persevere in their participation of the Gospel. They don't just show up on Sunday. They don't just merely uh, hear the Word and talk about the Word. They do the Word. How many times have we said it in here? (laughs) That's what God's called us to do is to be Word doers. They are partners. They are fellow investors in the Kingdom. Three times in Scripture, we learn that the Philippian church has sent an offering to the Apostle Paul. They are a giving church. We've discussed these crazy Macedonians before as we've talked about our stewardship before God and supporting His work with our financial resources that He has given us as we've talked about being open-hearted and open-handed with all the financial resources that God has given us. He expects us to be stewards. We've talked about these crazy Macedonians. You remember what Paul says about them in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-5? In their great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, what? In their deep poverty, it overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They, hey, beloved, they're not only good stewards of their wealth, they're good stewards of their poverty. They're still giving to Paul. Even in... Their poverty. Paul continues, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us the favor of participating in the support of the saints. These people were begging to give. That's a church you've got to love, right? They're begging to give. They get the whole... Yeah, they get the whole it's more blessed to give than to receive. They get that. And it's it's their lifestyle. Do you notice too that they weren't spare change or nominal givers. They gave from their deep poverty. It wasn't law giving. It was free will, sacrificial and cheerful giving. It was about understanding what a privilege it is to finance what God's doing. Beloved, It is a privilege. It's like getting in on the ground floor of Google. It's, let me restate that. It's infinitely better than getting in on the ground floor of Google. You cannot outgive God, beloved. And these Philippians, they knew that Jesus said, Give, and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, pouring into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. The Philippians got it. They understood it and they lived it. Verse 6, For I am confident, Paul says, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. One of the most cherished and beloved verses in all the Bible for the true Christian. Why? Because it's our unassailable Invincible, immutable, eternal security. I am secure. My salvation is secure. My eternity is secure because God is who God is. And God is holding Jim Albright. God is holding Jim Albright. It has nothing to do with any goodness I would have. In fact, the Bible tells us I have no goodness apart from Jesus. It's an awesome, awesome verse. I use it all the time with people. I use it all the time with people. Many times people who are discouraged. They're bogged down in sin. And and they're struggling with things in their lives. And sometimes people come to me and say, Jim, I don't even think I'm a Christian anymore. I say, well, examine your heart like Paul says. But if you are, fear not. God will complete the good work He's begun in you. It's a sovereign work of grace as we talked about. Before Some within Christendom like to teach that you can lose your salvation. May I say with all due respect, they don't know what they're talking about. It reveals a fundamental lack of understanding about what the Bible clearly says about how God saves His people. As we said earlier, salvation is a God thing from beginning to end. and That's what Paul is saying to us here in Philippians 1.6. It highlights and underscores that truth. Paul says, I am confident. What is he saying? He says, I'm persuaded. I'm convinced. I'm certain. I'm sure. I have no doubt. God will finish what God started. God is not a God who quits on anything. God always finishes what He starts. And if He's entered into your life, believe it. He will bring you into conformity with His Son. Now it's up to you as to how much discipline that will take. Because God disciplines His children. Amen? Amen? He says, you're not illegitimate. I love you. I will discipline you. God disciplines His children because He loves them. Paul says, God has begun this good work in you. What is this good work? How did it begin? It's like Lydia. It's like Lydia. God has opened our heart that we might believe the truth of the Gospel I love what John Piper says about this verse. I love this. Beloved, on your lowest day, the day when nobody else even has a suspicion you might be a Christian because of the way you've acted, God knows you belong to Him. And I love this God will not leave you to yourself. God will not leave you in your sin, and He will not leave you to yourself. He will come to you. He is faithful. In that way, He is bringing us into conformity. The biblical message about salvation is crystal clear. Salvation, it's God's idea. It's God's initiative. It's God's work. It's a supernatural miracle of God. I know that pseudo-Christianity tries to manage and control that, but you cannot take biblical Christianity and turn it into a formula. Now, you can create a formula. Catholics do it. Protestants do it. You can create a formula... But you can't, you can't put biblical Christianity into a formula. You cannot manage God. You cannot manage the Spirit of God. Again, we're talking about a supernatural miracle. You cannot put Christianity, biblical Christianity into a formula. It is the exclusive domain of God. God saves, no one else does. No one else can. No church, no pope, no priest, no preacher, no one can save but God. It's God's exclusive domain. He does that Ezekiel 36:26 thing. He does that heart transplant. <laughs> he does that heart transplant. John 6, He draws His people to Himself and He grants them repentance. 1 Peter 2.9, God calls us out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. John 3.3, He calls us to be born again, to be begotten of God. Titus 3.5, we we are washed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead, God made us alive together with Jesus Ephesians 1.4 God has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. God saves. Am I saying that men don't need to respond? Of course that's not what I'm saying. The Bible teaches both things. God is sovereign and man is responsible. You say, well Jim, it seems like there's tension there. I think there is some tension there in, in, our, in our brains, our two and a half pounds of gray matter. But these are truths that God teaches. Truths that God teaches teaches he says he's sovereign and he calls men to repent beloved both things are true both things are taught by the bible it's, it's romans eight twenty nine thirty. 30 you guys know this text perfectly amplifies and echoes philippians 1 6 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son So that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. While many in the modern church don't like it when God talks like that, that's how God talks when it comes to the salvation of His people. God says, I saved my people. And it's a done deal. Romans 8. Did you notice all of those verbs are past tense? God says, I save my people. Oh, I have saved my people. I am saving my people. I will bring them to myself forever and ever. God has utterly, completely, wholly, and irreversibly saved His people. And I'm, I'm, I'm done, but I have to talk about one more thing. I'm not quite done. It's almost like I'm done, but I'm really not. <laughs> Do you remember that breathtaking thing we learned in the Gospel of John? Most of you weren't here. We went through the Gospel of John, and for a couple, it took us a couple of years to get through that awesome gospel. Jesus said it nine times. It's a big deal with Jesus. He said it nine times. He says, he talks about the fact that the redeemed are a gift from the Father to the Son. That takes my breath away. Jim Albright is a gift from the Father to the Son. I can make a lot of airtight biblical arguments for my own eternal security and for yours, but maybe none more beautiful and compelling than the simple fact that I am a love offering from the Father to the Son. You think Jesus is going to lose one of those? You think Jesus is going to lose a gift from the Father? Let me ask you, if this is true and it, it's biblically accurate, how could Jesus ever lose a gift from the Father? Another thing Jesus says five times in the Gospel of John is he says, he says, not only is this a gift from the Father, He says, I'll never lose one of My people. He says, I'll never lose one of My people. Ever. 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 Beloved, we are eternally secure. John 10.28, Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of My hand. Remember? Do you remember John 10.29? He says, no one can snatch them out of My Father's hand. Beloved, you got, you got the Trinity hanging on to you. We are secure. God will complete the good work He's begun in you. He will never let you go. You are eternally secure in Him. Philippians 1:6 simply reiterates what Jesus says in John 6:39. Jesus said, "All that the Father has given me, I will lose none, I will raise them up on the last day." And that's what Paul says here. We will be perfect in, uh, He will perfect us until the day of Christ. Jesus until the last day. The king of love has sent for his people, and beloved, no one can stop him or no thing can stop him. I love that. You know, the Gospel is preached in such a man-centered way in most places. Most most Christians have never even really reveled and rejoiced in that truth. The Father of love has sent for me. And it's a done deal. (laughs) It is a done deal. So you see, you see the foundation of Paul's joy in, in the epistle of joy? It's the same foundation for every true believer. My God is God. My God has come for me. My God is holding me. My God has saved me. I belong to my God forever. And nothing can change that. Nothing. Nothing. You see why Paul has joy? Beloved, if you think deeply about these things if you let these things inform every single day of the rest of your life, you too will learn how to walk in the joy of Christ Jesus. I'm not saying it's easy. I have obviously days that I'm not joyful at all. But you know what I have to do? I have to confess that to God because I should be. I should be. And I think... I think it just seems good to close with Romans chapter 8. You know, here in this great chapter, maybe the greatest chapter in all the Bible, I don't know. But right there after verses 29 and 30, after God says, I save my people and I save them utterly, it's a done deal. And then this is what the Holy Spirit has Paul write. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Beloved, no one. No one can be against you if you belong to Christ. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also uh, with Him freely give us everything? You know what? If you need help with your joy, just, just in the morning read Romans 8. Just read Romans 8. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who uh, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Did you hear that? Not only has he saved you, he's interceding for you. If you look at verse 26 over there, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. Yes, he'll complete the good work he's begun. Do you see it here in Romans chapter 8? Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. We are Nike. We overcome everything. We overcome. Verse 38, 4. This is the same word he used in Philippians 1, 6. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Anybody want to say Anything? Live your joy. Live your joy. Live your joy. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this beautiful Word. Thank You for this assurance that we have in You. We put no confidence in religion. We put no confidence in the traditions of men. We put no confidence in what men say. But we have every confidence in Your Word and in every promise You have made to us. And with great joy, we claim this eternal life that You have freely offered. Father, we confess our sin before You, knowing that we don't need purgatory. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover every sin. And we praise You for that, great God. And we praise You that our salvation is Yours from beginning to end. We praise You, great God, that that You call us, You give us faith, You grant repentance. We praise You, awesome God, that You hold us and You will never let us go. You seal us in Your Spirit. You indwell us by the third member of the Trinity. Oh God, these are unbelievable things. Forgive us, Father, if we have taken these things for granted. Forgive us if we live small lives. We know You've called us to live lives of faith. Faith that testifies to Your reality and Your power. Lord, I pray Your joy will flow through us even on the hardest day. Your joy will flow through us. That the unbelievers around us will see that You are a satisfying God. A compellingly satisfying God. On our best day and on our hardest day. Thank You, Father that you hold us. Thank you, Father, that you will complete the good work you've begun. I pray, Lord God, that we would go out in the world and live that with great boldness. My Father is sovereign and I walk in His power. I walk in His joy. Lord God, help us to Help us to appropriate those truths. I pray all this in the beautiful name of your Son. Amen.